3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Max. <laughs> Good morning, Max. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 23rd of April. Wow. Time flies amazing. when you're staying indoors. <laughs> this is amazing that we're actually recording not on the 23rd of April. I know. Don't don't give away our secret. <laughs> <laughs> also, just need to share with listeners how wonderful it is because we're all recording from our homes, as you know, everyone's at home at the moment. Um, but for the sake of a better recording, we also have some of our presenters under their dressing gowns at the moment. It's a very beautiful, it's a beautiful sight. Who knew that you could be like a an audio expert or a tech expert with a um, pink dressing gown over your head and your computer so it doesn't echo? Yes, it's almost perfect studio conditions. <laughs> Replicating the studio with a pink dressing gown. <laughs> so what do we have on our show this morning, Pete? So uh, after after some news headlines from Kate Kelly, I'm speaking with... Sam Elkin about the LGBTI Legal Needs Survey, which closes soon, as well as the Change Your ID Day for trans and gender diverse folks, which is coming up in May. Um, and then after that, uh, we've got our weekly poetry segment, Writers Reading, with Chi Tran reading a selection of their poetry. So Chi Tran is an emerging artist and writer based in NARM. Uh, they've written and exhibited in Cordite Poetry Review, First Draft, um, ACA, Liquid Architecture, and many more. And they've got some forthcoming work in Unmagazine and Minority Report. Um, and then I speak with Chris Sharinga Sh- Sh- from the Gungro Environment Centre. Um, and she speaks a bit about the 10-year login exemptions that have just been rolled over in late March in the middle of the novel coronavirus pandemic. So while everyone was talking about the coronavirus, these uh, login exemptions, uh, which means that loggers can log native forests, have been rolled over for another 10 years. And that's while the areas are uh, recovering from the devastating bushfires that were just a couple of months ago. And then after that, I speak with Dinesh, who's a Sri Lankan Tamil refugee who's currently detained at Mantra Bell City. And we speak about the harms of immigration detention, um, the need to re- release refugees into the community and the potential impacts that coronavirus will have on detainees. And last up, I talk with Jane Dicker from Harm Reduction Victoria about the challenges facing the drug using community in these uncertain times. And Jane shares with us some tips and tricks from Harm Reduction Victoria's awesome resources on drug use planning and pharmacotherapy during COVID-19, which you can find online. What a rad show. So that I'm really excited for that interview because it's something that I'd love to cover more on the show is, you know, I guess some of the, the laws and exemptions that have like slipped quietly in while everyone's been focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so that's something I'd be really keen to cover more on the show in coming weeks. Yeah. And hopefully we can cover, because I think uh, uh, there's, like we couldn't cover everything in the interview, obviously. Um, but uh, from what I understand, there's uh, so last year there was uh, these uh, areas that were earmarked for conservation, 
um, that have been destroyed, destroyed with the bushfires um, and the areas that were marked for like loggers um, uh, haven't been destroyed. So they're not going to use those areas to like, they're not going to conserve those native forests, but they'll continue to log them from my understanding um, as it stands right now. So, yeah, that's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I think things are still scheduled to be logged in the middle of all this. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, well, let's, let's definitely keep talking about that on the show. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And now let's jump to headlines with Kate Kelly. Over to you, Kate. In Melbourne news, as more people head outside for their daily exercise, council officers patrolling the city's biggest parks are being enforced to dob in those flouting the social distancing rules into the police. So exercising hotspots like Princess Park, the Tan and some coastal tracks have deployed local officers to educate people about social distancing but they're now being pushed to alert police to those people breaking the rules. So the council officers are not authorised to issue fines, but are tasked with reporting breaches back to police. It comes as state police forces rapidly escalate the number of people fined for breaching public health orders despite falling infection rates and amid concerns from law and justice experts that the laws are being sort of inconsistently and arbitrarily enforced. So dozens of Victorians have described feeling intimidated, discriminated against and fearful after being targeted by police enforcing the state's lockdown laws, according to a new report released this week detailing the use of emergency powers. And to the Ruby Princess, where the unions have slammed the government's handling of the crew still on board the cruise ship, which is now docked at Port Kembla in New South Wales. So the ship was a key source of COVID-19 infections Australia-wide. New South Wales Health have said there were 190 crew out of more than 1,000 on board who have tested positive for COVID-19 as of Tuesday. There were also 13 crew members in New South Wales Health facilities, 12 of them having been tested positive for COVID-19. But not all of the crew have undergone testing. So New South Wales South Coast Labor Council Secretary Arthur Roris said it was criminal negligence that only some of the crew had been tested. And to make it worse, it's not even clear sort of which authority is responsible for providing medical care to the crew. It's an ongoing story and there'll be more to watch with that one in the coming days. And in some good news, trans and gender diverse persons in Victoria will be able to change the recorded sex on their birth certificates without having to undergo a sex affirmation surgery as of May the 1st, 2020. So just in about eight days. In August 2019, um, some of you will remember the Upper House of the Victorian Parliament had introduced those changes to the law through the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Amendment Bill. So those changes are now coming into effect on May the 1st. The new certificate will not have your previous name or any history of the record of the change to sex. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. This is Kate Kelly. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and now I'm joined by Sam Elkin to talk with us about the LGBTIQ Legal Needs Survey. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Sam. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. So to jump right in, what is this 
LGBTIQ legal needs survey that you've been involved with? Yeah, so um, the LGBTIQ legal service has been running a pilot project for the last two years now to address um, the unmet legal needs of the Victorian LGBTIQ community. And um, we've been pretty like open in terms of what we would help people with because we don't really know what it is. Um, we didn't have a sort of firm agenda when we, when we started the project. And um, one of the things that we wanted to do at the end of the project, we're coming to the end now, is write a comprehensive report Report on what the both met and unmet legal needs of the LGBTIQ community are. So that could be things like, uh, you know, help with fines, infringements, tenancies, um, criminal charges. Could be things like, um, you know, parenting arrangements and parenting disputes, stuff like that. Um, and we would just really want the community to respond to this survey to let us know um, what legal needs they've had in the past, um, whether or not they were addressed respectfully by a lawyer if they had one, um, whether they had a good experience or a bad experience in court if they went to court, and um, proactively asking for ideas on what we can do to make um, you know, the, the justice system in Victoria better for LGBTIQ people. And... Just to sort of, I guess, like look back at some of the, the work you've been doing over the past few years, you know, you've had a huge amount on your plate um, doing the LGBTIQ legal service. What are some of the actual, I guess, like the legal needs on the ground that you've been seeing in doing that work? Yeah, so um, the way that we structured our project was um, we've been doing a health justice partnership with Thorn Harbour Health, which used to be known as the Victorian AIDS Council. So we've been paired with the um, the AOD team, the alcohol and other drugs team. So we've had heaps of referrals from the, them after the la, over the last two years and also from the um, Thorn Harbour Health family violence team and their general counselling team. So we've had, um, unsurprisingly, we've had a big um, response for people needing help with criminal charges relating to um, drug possession. Um, so we've had some tenancy issues relating to allegations of drug use at the property things like that. So there's the kind of issues that have been coming out of the AOD team. Um, family violence, unsurprisingly, um, family violence um, related support is the primary need for assistance there. So that's both um, affected family members, so people that are um, seeking intervention orders and also people that are respondents in intervention order matters. And there's often criminal charges um, that stem from um, family violence incidences. So we've had um, requests for support around that as well. Um, but more broadly, we've had heaps of requests for support around discrimination, um, particularly the trans and gender diverse community and um, gay or same-sex attracted men or men who have sex as men in country regional areas in their employment. So they're yeah, some of the big themes that we've had um, in the service. Um, but, yeah, we continue to explore ways that we can connect with different parts of the community and we don't necessarily think that we've assisted everybody um, because we're a small team and that's why we want to do a survey to, to kind of reach out to people that we may not have spoken with, we may not have helped. We don't want to skew the, the report um, to show that, you know, every LGBTIQ person needs help with drug-related offences mm. uh, when that may not be the case. We may just have not reached an entire segment of the community that has unmet legal needs. And yeah, as you're sort of saying, like obviously one of those, those limitations is based off, um, you know, the, the various referral pathways you've had, but also I guess the huge barriers that LGBTIQ people face um, in terms of, you know, either identifying things as legal issues or like reaching out um, and getting support that is 
are, you know, safe and appropriate and what they need. Could you speak a little bit about, um, yeah, some of those barriers that queer and trans folks, for example, face um, in accessing legal support? Yeah, well, I guess there's kind of two broad kinds of legal problems that you might have, one of which is kind of like a reactive issue. So say, for example, you've got um, criminal charges and then you you know, are looking for a lawyer or some sort of support to help you in court. I think um, people like that, the kind of issues that they have in terms of barriers is the fact that there isn't enough legal support for everybody. Um, so Victoria Legal Aid's guidelines for legal support are really, really strict. Um, basically, if you're not, if there isn't a strong likelihood that you're going to be incarcerated, um, you're probably not going to get ongoing assistance um, from an organisation like Victoria Legal Aid. You might get duty lawyer assistance on the day, but that person may or may not have been trained in LGBTIQ inclusive practice. They may, um, you know, uh, intentionally or unintentionally um, discriminate against people and certainly the experience that um, clients have had in the court and, um, you know, dealing with correction staff and things like that has really been a mixed bag. Um, there isn't a standard level of inclusive practice within the courts and broader justice system at the moment. So there's some of the kind of barriers that people might experience if they've been charged or if they're respondent in a family violence order, for example. But then there's a whole bunch of kind of um, legal issues that, that you might need to take a positive step to enforce your legal rights. So say, for example, if you've been sacked um, for being uh, bisexual or for being in a poly relationship or something like that, um, you know, you then need to take the proactive step of either lodging at the Fair Work Commission or lodging a discrimination complaint. And the whole model at the moment is an individual complaints-based system. It requires, you know, somebody like an LGBTIQ person to identify that they've been wronged in some way, to identify a legal service like ours that might be able to help them and to go through the, you know, emotional drama of engaging in litigation against a powerful organisation that has, you know, wronged you and hurt you, mm-hmm. um, particularly if you've lost your job. I mean, that's 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 a big call. So there's a lot of barriers there um, in terms of, you know, the ability to pay, for people to access free and, you know, appropriate legal services in a timely fashion, and then the kind of systemic issues that, the issue is pushed back upon the individual to sort out. It's not like there's a work safe type thing that can swoop in and assist somebody. It's an individual complaints based model. Um, you're meant to, you know, take your have your day in court, I suppose. So there's a lot of different issues in involved in that. And what do you think are some of the I guess the pros and cons of of, you know, having an expanding and LGBTIQ-specific legal service versus, you know, you, you mentioned um, LGBTIQ-inclusive training for, you know, for generalist community legal centres, I guess. Um, yeah, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, this is something that's come up heaps in, um, like, trans and gender diverse communities and healthcare as well recently. So it's a conversation that's being had in a lot of different areas of life. Um, I think that we want specialist services and we want mainstream services as well to not discriminate and to be able to provide a basic level of um, professional services to everybody. That's what we want. And I think that you have a specialist service there like the LGBTIQ legal service to model best practice and to um, provide training to other organisations and to run, um, you know, strategic litigation around 
areas in which LGBTIQ people are routinely experiencing discrimination, for example, um, wherever that might be. But you, you know, it's completely unrealistic for you know two or three lawyers to help every LGBTIQ people that need need support in Victoria. Like we need the mainstream services, both the legal assistance sector like Legal Aid and also private lawyers as well to build their capacity to, you know, not misgender people when they come for legal support, um, not bring really harmful um, stereotypes about, you know, poly or open relationships when they're taking a legal history from somebody that makes somebody not want to go back and, you know, divulge really personal information. We need both to happen and that's why I think you need a specialist service there to, to model and, and be the advocate for it for the mainstream. And has the LGBTIQ legal service been supporting queer and trans folks who are criminalised and imprisoned? And if so, you know, what sort of support have you been providing or what gaps do you see in terms of legal need there? Yeah, so we have kind of quietly launched this project um, in the last year called the Roberta Perkins Law Project, which is designed to focus specifically on the needs of the trans and gender diverse community throughout Victoria. And... Um, when we set that up, I was imagining that we would be helping people with, you know, Centrelink appeals and tenancy issues and stuff like that. And we've been doing a bit of that. But to be honest, the overwhelming legal need that we've identified is within the prison population. So um, many people who are trans and gender diverse who are incarcerated at the moment, either on the remand or have been sentenced at the moment, are you know, routinely experiencing all kinds of structural um, issues, you know, including sexual harassment and discrimination, um, not being placed in the, you know, correct prison for the gender to which they identify, not being able to access timely and, you know, sensitive um, medical support around hormone replacement therapy, for example, um, and, you know, a high level of, I suppose, uh, trauma in, in being incarcerated in, um, you know, a, a men's prison if they're a trans woman, for example. Um, so there's a lot of work to do in that space. I think that we need a lot of change in that area and we're very keen to keep working with trans and gender diverse prisoners or people that are um, at risk of becoming incarcerated. And, um, yeah, we continue to reach out to um, people through the through the Victorian prisons. Broadly speaking, what are, I guess, what are your yeah, hopes and dreams for the LGBTIQ legal service in the future? Well, <laughs> we'd like to continue to exist. Um, that would be, <laughs> we've got a very humble dream, which is continued <laughs> existence. Um, you know, like I'm sure many of the listeners will intimately understand, like working in not-for-profits, there's just constant funding dramas around getting your project initially funded and then refunded. So we're just going through a lot of that stuff at the moment. Um, but we think we're going to get there. And I suppose what we would like to see is an ongoing, stable and funded service and expanding the partnerships that we already have. So we've got a partnership with Transgender Victoria, which is great. We've got a partnership with Thorn Harbour Health, which is great. We'd like to do more work with um, the uh, tr trans and gender diverse sex worker community. So we're going to work on the... Um, law reform decriminalisation submission with sex workers later in the year, which we're really looking forward to and think is really important. And um, we just can want to do more better, basically. We want to have more of a um, presence in regional communities in Victoria. Um, so we'd like to get out to 
Bendigo. I know um, Thorn Harbour Health in Bendigo have a small office up there, so we want to get out there and do some community outreach at some point. And we just kind of want to do, I suppose, you know, timely and effective strategic litigation as well. So we want to, you know, run test cases that can actually make meaningful changes um, in, you know, areas of life where people are still being discriminated against. So, you know, in healthcare, in um, prisons or in correction settings, um, in education. Yeah, we want to be doing all that stuff. And we want to be doing high quality research as well because, you know, um, you can see some really awesome reports that organisations like Rainbow Health have done with the Private Lives Survey. And I guess this legal needs analysis that we're doing is our sort of baby steps in that direction so that we can actually, you know, show um, government and other not-for-profits, you know, how the LGBTIQ community is being affected by laws um, that are being passed or policies that are being implemented by housing providers that may have not intended to exclude LGBTIQ people or disadvantage them, but that are, you know, we need that research as well. So we're really proud of the work that we're doing and we just kind of want to keep doing it and do it better. Absolutely. And how can listeners jump online and fill out this survey? Yeah, so if you go onto our Facebook page, which is LGBTI Legal Service, and it's the Victorian one, not the Brisbane one, um, you can fill out the survey. Um, it's on there. Um, and you can also jump onto our website, which is lgbtiqlegal.org.au. And if you have, um, you know, legal needs, um, contact us and we've got a contact form on there and we can help you. We're doing everything remotely at the moment because we're not in the office. But, um, you know, if you shoot us an email, we can give you a call Monday to Friday. So really, really want to reach out to the community at the moment. And if you're unable to find it on Facebook or don't use Facebook, um, feel free to send me an email. My email address is sam at skls.org.au. Just email me and I'll send you a link to the survey. And it's going to be open until Sunday the 26th of April at 11.59pm. <laughs> Excellent. And we were going to chat about the Change Your ID Day coming up in May as well, but maybe we'll leave that for next time and have a chat in a few weeks about it. I'm Absolutely. Sure. Let's stay in touch about that. Thank you so much, Sam Elkin, for joining us on the show and definitely encourage listeners to jump online and fill out the LGBTIQ Legal Needs Survey before this Sunday midnight. And now we're going to head to some poetry by Chi Tran. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Stay tuned. My name is Chi Tran. I'm a writer and artist based in Nam, and I'm lucky enough to be sharing some writing with you today. Um, this is an old text I wrote in 2017. I wait in order for experience to be felt in retrospect. I continue to innovate myself as a subject under seemingly shared governance in the hope of feeling understood. I say a thing and a thing cannot be the same, as if I can know. The phenomenon of this, a response that when counted on another hand is merely a condition. I feel inclined to propose a method of articulation but it relies on the falsehood of a given. Expression and as, as elaboration of subjectivity 
instills in me a kind of belief that whatever we may consider as a given or shared is likely false. Commonality is a melt. I cannot mould it into a mutual hold. My sentiment is sometimes borrowed. In many ways, my empathy is a problem. I speak of myself as a malleable compound, but by that I just mean my fingers can bend like so as I gesture towards something resembling reciprocity. This next poem is called On Learning a Form of Devotion. There is a desire to know your own history, to make mass flatter and less obstructive. I push myself to enact, in place, configure, as a means of finding some kind of lastingness. From where my neck curves into my shoulder, my body enters a mode of speculation. And from this, I hope to find a paradisiac way of building dimension with the freedom to move and when nothing ever happens. There is a certain kind of catharsis that comes from the collapse of a structure, perhaps within the learning that we may continue to live without it. So, while I have a tendency to mark all my intentions, I also understand that to have the space to chew and uproot is best. We charge through movement with the function of allowing a course of change to take place out of sight. This next poem is an excerpt from my 2016 chapbook. It's titled, I Occupy Space, which is to say I'm always grieving. One, memory like decomposition is a process accelerated by warmth. I place a ball of wax on my tongue, close my mouth, a soft crumble. Someone writes the word controversial, but I think they might mean cool. Then blood and pleasure are once again made normal, and I remember what I had been told to forget. The ubiquitous need for temporary measures is a matter of survival. I press my feet into grass that did not grow from the ground, and I wonder if this is what it means to have good fortune. Two. There is volume in labour, and so precision is the only way I know how to talk about myself. No matter how much is lost in the process of transmission, sound is the proof of my embodiment. I pour the bile from my gallbladder into a cardboard box and I light it on fire. This is how I eat. I drop a ceramic plate of raw meat onto the gravel. This is how I speak. Three. I come across a child I do not recognise, lying on the pavement, sweating ink in a very deep shade of blue. The ink pools around her body as she tells me that she is tired of biting her tongue. Her body sinks into an abyss, into a puddle of chemical phenomena, into a glance that resembles hunger and that resembles guilt. 
We seem to begin and end with loss, registering form without pause. I occupy space, which is to say, I am always grieving. Four. I see and I have value, but I will not make myself privy to a process of evaluation. I seek to inhabit dissonance without the threat of collapse. The conditions of my existence are about to expire, so I ask, what kind of gaze would a free body be under? How to break something apart, gently, firmly, without causing fissure or cavity. Five. A figure is always incident to something else that breathes. Identity is not an either-or choice which means my politic is not capable of being nor becoming singular. For example, I can be fog, vapour, and I can be light. I can be pulse and rhythm, door and colour, boy and form. Six. I grow with water. I leak from the base with every gesture, and I take full responsibility. Because although it is learned, it is mine to change. 7. I have come to know myself within a culture of power and desirability, which makes me wonder, will I ever take it off? What is my physiology and why do I care? I talk of process over product, yet language never fails to matter. We sit we fold and we bereave our own waste. I'm selfish in that I would like to be loved in a world where the concept of replacement does not exist. I like to accumulate losses and so my sense of futurity is necessarily tied to the dying plants in my kitchen window. I eat myself to articulate my state of injury. So tonight I eat my own body, uncooked and whole. I'm going to read one last poem. This is titled, If falling is relational, then a body in free fall may not necessarily be falling down. In the absence of any other forces, weightlessness occurs. A weightless system is one within which we are holding and caring even while being ripped into. And from this rip, we speculate, produce and dissolve. I have inaugurated myself out of necessity into a relationship with intimacy. We drink from and spit into the commons. I hear of memorization as a method by which one grounds themselves and interrogates the intrinsic value of being bodied. Working feels insufficient because there may not be an intercessory form of being after all. We may continue to be wasteful and go on to express a feeling of regret and famous examples do not stop us. Can you imagine a fall where there is no ground? Within the gesture of dissolve still lies an intent fixation on landing, on arriving. A cursory experience may not be as immaterial nor ineffectual as we sometimes think. If we are to consider the idea of groundlessness, perhaps we must leave behind the pre-given and anticipated force of impact, 
and renounce the assumption that we will land or that we will arrive. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. Up next, we hear from Chris Sheringa from the Gungra Environment Centre, and she'll speak a little bit about the 10-year logging industry exemptions that have been rolled over at the end of March. So just a couple of weeks ago, in the midst of fears surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. So um, firstly, could you tell us a bit about uh, Gecko or the Gungra Environment Centre and the work that you do there, Chris? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we're a grassroots community group that are based in the small town of Goongra in far east Gippsland. Um, we've been campaigning since 1993, not me, but the group. Uh, it's got a long history of, um, of campaigning for protection of east Gippsland forests and that's using a variety of strategies like education, raising public awareness, lobbying, uh, long history of blockading and non-violent direct action and also citizen science and forest monitoring. So, yeah, we do, we do a lot of different kind of, kind of work to, to protect forests and, and to campaign for forest protection in East Gippsland. Okay. Um, and a couple of weeks back um, on March 30th, um, the Vic government extended the regional forest agreements for another 10 years. Could you tell us firstly about the RFAs and secondly what, what this means? Uh, so the regional forest agreements, or also known as uh, legal exemptions, are uh, contracts between state and federal governments which give the logging industry in Victoria exemption from national environment law, like the EPDC Act. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a really dodgy contract which has been going on for twenty years, and then yeah, last week it signed off for a ten-year. Um, 10-year extension. Uh, and what it means is is that threatened species like the greater glider, which is a bushfire-affected threatened species, lost over 25% of its habitat, it was really gravely impacted by the fires. It's listed under the EPPC Act and that Vic Forest, the state-owned logging company, don't have to apply for exemptions. Um, they just sort of automatically get a free pass. Um and, yeah, I suppose what that means is that any continued logging that happens is happening under the RFA. So really critical threatened species habitat, uh, forests and wildlife that have been affected by the fires and are possibly subject to salvage logging, it, that, that's all going to happen under these legal exemptions. So I swear, before we get into sort of what, what's happened um, uh, sort of in the bushfires and how that's affected East Gippsland, can we talk firstly about the, the timing here? So this was like, you know, a couple of weeks ago uh, in the middle of uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, yeah, so why were these, what, why do you think these agreements were passed then? And could you speak to that? Um, I think that, I mean, the, the agreements uh, were set to be uh, signed off on that day, there was an expi- like an expiry date, and they were set to be signed off. But I think what's really irresponsible is that they 
at least in, in terms of East Gippsland, the regional forest agreement shouldn't have been signed given the given the extensive impacts of the bushfires. And there's not even logging happening in East Gippsland at the moment. So it just seems really, um, yeah, just irresponsible or that they couldn't just wait until impact assessments have been done on certain species. They know, they know what sort of impact logging they're going to have. Uh, and also changes to law and policies around threatened species and, and things like that. So that's a really frustrating thing that they've just sort of gung-ho gone in and signed off on these dodgy agreements um, without really considering what's happened. And also the health crisis as well, it sort of leaves, yeah, means there's not as much scrutiny and not as much focus on and attention on what's going on in these dodgy laws that have just been passed. Yeah, um, and you talked about like some changes in the laws. Uh, what did you? What, what changes in what laws? I mean, um, as because because of the bushfires, mm. there, there will be changes to policies mm. and environmental laws to strengthen to strengthen protections for threatened species. And so, really, what should be happening is no, uh, no logging should be happening until that happens, because then anything that happens between now and then could be potentially, yeah, devastating for wildlife if it's the same practices, yeah. Yeah, um, and, yeah, and you just touched on it before, so uh, we know that uh, the bushfires uh, heavily impacted Victoria and destroyed a lot of rainforest um, and also the habitat of already threatened species. Um, and we know that um, the bushfires also destroyed areas that were earmarked for conservation. Um, and um, and also uh, there are still scheduled uh, logging to be done in um, some forests around, in unburnt forests around um, Victoria. So tying that all, all together, could you could you expand on 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 that, like the effects of the bushfires, um, and also um, the sort of continued scheduling of um, uh, logging of native forests? Well, I mean, um, Melbourne's really lucky on its doorstep. There are forests in the Central Highlands, which are yeah two hours away from Melbourne. Um, and I think that the bushfires really mean that we need to think about certain species on a state-based level. You know, the Central Highlands has has populations of bushfire-affected certain species like the Greater Glider, uh, City, City Owl, Powerful Owl. And so I think it's really important to think about it in a state-based context that these really important areas on East Gippsland have been, and we need to make sure that the unburnt areas are protected and also that they're not salvage logging in East Gippsland. But it's also really important to focus on the Central Islands as well and that key animal populations are there. And a massive fire event is they're becoming more frequent, um, more likely because of climate change, hotter and drier conditions, drought. And so we need to safeguard our natural environment for the future threats. And I think it's so important that forests across Victoria, really native forest logging is just not sustainable anymore across the state. And the government announced the end in 2030, but forests just, we just don't have that kind of time. So I think that really now the government has to start transitioning the industry now. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
and I guess like um, like a, a, a lot of time uh, these sort of like governmental responses to like uh, delaying um, sort of defunding the industry and delaying um, sort of stopping the log- logging industries has been always about jobs and these sort of economic and economic viability, um, which sort of shadows um, maybe some ideological reasoning behind it and maybe like that business mentality of the government uh, rather than looking to like for long term impacts, especially like like you just mentioned, um, the effects of of climate change. Australia is getting hotter. Um, we're going to see more bushfires, um, and that's going to impact the like the Australia's environment and the humans and and sort of economic like what does that what do these economic uh, uh, viability responses mean you know within all that could you speak yeah. a bit to that uh, I think that well I mean recently an article just just came out which um, spoke about uh, what how much money it would cost the government to transition out of native forest logging if they were to do it now. Uh, and it was, and it was commissioned by the Greens. And it came out that if, if the industry were to transition now, the government would save $192 million. So the, and that money could be spent on security for workers and actually putting money into industries that, that are sustainable and giving giving workers an opportunity to transition because we've known the industry has been collapsing. There isn't security for workers. Um, and so really it's it's the economic balance and I think also um, putting money into rural communities and initiatives to to support jobs, which, which can be sustained because... Jobs in native forest logging—it's just not—it's not a viable industry anymore. So I think that ultimately this decision not only is it economically beneficial, it—it it will actually support workers to have security. Because mm-hmm. right now, yeah, right now, I mean, as part of the government government announcement, there was money that was that would be available for for workers to exit, but that money is not available for another five years. So. Imagine that, learning that you've lost your job, but then knowing that you wouldn't be able to have the support to be able to transition for another five years. That's pretty, yeah. It's going to lose work at high and dry, I think. Yeah. Um, and and also you were you were speaking uh, just just before in our in our conversation just before we started recording um, about uh, how people up in Gungra and I suppose East East East, East Gippsland um, on a whole are still recovering um, like for, from the direct impacts um, from the bushfires that were just yeah. a few months ago. Um, could you speak yeah. about a bit about what's what's going on up in up there? I think the the forest is is recovering um, as it like it's quite it's quite green, mm-hmm. um, a lot of rain and yeah, so it sort of like looks like the areas, um, the forest area around is about to back a little bit or starting to recover, which is really nice. And I think a lot of the a lot of the community that that live out there uh, are just rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their homes. Um, because some of yeah, some of them lost their homes there, uh, and also then I think trying to reconcile with this new crisis as well, and and it's it's difficult 
um, the bushfires were so horrific for so many people. Um, and then to experience this health crisis as well on the back of it, it's just, yeah, it's tough times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But the people in Green are extremely resilient and self-sufficient. And I think, um, yeah, a strong community of people who, Um, and and do you think there's been much talk around the link between bushfires and sort of lo- lo- logging um, at all? And yeah, and just before I, I suppose because uh, we need a um, sort of like we're in the tail end of the interview, um, but also um, so you know has there been talk about those links between the bushfires and the um, and the logging industry? Uh, but also I guess what are the next steps from here? as well? Um, in terms of uh, logging and, and fire security, there's, there's some really great um, great published work by Professor David Lindemeyer that talks a lot about that. I probably can't speak to speak to a lot of the details, but basically the studies show that um, yeah, when you, when you clear fell an, an area and then the younger trees grow back and they suck water out of the soil, drying the soil, and then um, they become more fire. It becomes more fire prone, and also when it does burn, it, it burns at a higher intensity because the trees are smaller. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had in the future, or something that's really spoken about because I think um, it's a very emotive topic for people, and there's a lot of misinformation out there around uh, what causes fires. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's it's just such a contentious space with a lot of debate. And I think what's really needed is just really clear messaging and debunking of myths that just aren't, aren't true, so that they continue to be yeah continue to be perpetrated. Um, in terms of what's next, I think um, I mean Gecko, we're just we're just doing yeah doing. Doing work, just trying to trying to protect the, these wild areas of East Gippsland. I mean, the bushfires were so intense; it burnt so much, so many areas of forest, and so much wildlife habitat. It was just devastating. And so, we really just want to focus on the fact that they, sh- they should not be logging in unburnt areas of forest or going into salvage logs. So, that's sort of what we're campaigning on and what we're working on. And and has that been affected by COVID nineteen? Like we know that courts are functioning to a minimum, for example. So, um, like how how are you guys going around that about that? Yeah, it does sort of limit our limit our ability to do forest monitoring monitoring work and and surveying as well. Um, but yeah, we're working around those those limitations. Yeah, we're just doing all we can. And um, and how can listeners uh, find out more or get involved? Uh, we've got a website and Facebook and Twitter. If you go to gecko, G-E-C-O dot org dot au, uh, you can sign up to our email list. We've got a blog um, to keep updated. And, yeah, if you search Green Green Environment Centre on Facebook or Twitter, you'll find us through there as well. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Is, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up the interview? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
So that was Chris Schroinger from the Goongro Environment Centre who spoke a bit about the 10-year exemptions for logging that have just been rolled over in late March. You're listening to 855 AM 3CR Radio and it is the 23rd of April and I'm going to be playing some new tracks for you today Um, and this one is called Girl Like Me by Becca Hatch.
and that was a track by Becca Hatch, Girl Like Me, which was only released um, this week. So that's the new music for you. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. Next up, we'll be listening to an interview I conducted with Thanos, a Sri Lankan Tamil refugee who's currently detained at Mantra Bell City Hotel in Melbourne. Thanos sought refuge in Australia in 2013, but was transferred to Manus Island, where he was detained for six and a half years. He was then transferred to Australia from PNG for medical treatment, and for the past nine months has been detained at Mantra. Mantra is one of the many so-called alternative places of detention being used by the Australian Border Force to detain refugees and asylum seekers through its nationwide punitive immigration detention network. Many of those being held at Mantra and other hotels had been transferred to Australia from Papua New Guinea and Nauru in 2019 under the now-repealed medevac laws, which were introduced to provide life-saving medical care to people detained in Australia's offshore processing centres and were repealed back in December of 2019. Thunner speaks with us about the harms of Australia's immigration detention regime and how these have been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. Hey, Thunner, thank you so much for making the time to join us on this show. Could you let listeners know a little bit about yourself and where you're calling from? Yeah. Uh, my name is Thanos. I was in Manus Island uh, six and a half years. Finally, I was transferred to Australia, uh, medical treatment. Now I'm calling from Mantra Hotel in Melbourne. Thank you. And you've been posting updates about the conditions that you and other people uh, that are detained at the Mantra Bell Hotel are facing. So could you tell us a bit about the experience of being at the Mantra so far? Yes. Uh, currently, I am at the Mantra Hotel, Melbourne. I have been locked up for past nine months. Around 17 men being detained in this hotel. Uh, we are great risk of being affected with coronavirus. We cannot maintain social distance in here. And the staff who work here, they don't have any mask or precaution. They are not wearing masks and gloves or always. Uh, you know, one circle officer in Brisbane, he was affected with coronavirus. That say we are care about staff and guards. We can be affected by corona anytime. We are spending 23 hours a day in our room, we cannot allow to go outside. Uh, past two months, we no access to fresh air and warm sunlight. And yeah, that's really, it's really concerning that the staff there as well don't have protective equipment. 
yeah every, everyone in every all detention center and even quarter and in case detention center everywhere this uh, yeah in risk because we don't go outside anywhere but uh, all the staff are coming from outside who knows they have sick or whatever but they they should be work inside the detention center and hotel almost many security guards are coming here and work. they don't don't wear any clothes or mask proper mask or this that's why we are care about them yeah in great risk in this period mm-hmm. so do you have access to things like soap or hand sanitizer or uh, are you also missing out on that kind of protective stuff yeah they provide some container uh, and so but uh, officially which we ask they will give but not good quality but this normal even last few 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 months few weeks ago this canteen we don't all run out soap is run out there we don't have any soap but they keep the different soap for hand wash okay and i know that you've been engaging in some peaceful demonstrations holding up signs uh, about the conditions that you're currently being kept in so how long have you been um doing that sign protest and have you gotten any responses from the government or border force yeah but uh, we did this uh, peaceful protest last uh, one and a half month signs the out of break corona virus pandemic break torch we have been doing peaceful protest asking the government to release but the government seemed to be very ignore and careless Okay so you haven't gotten a reply. We haven't get any reply but we keep doing peaceful protest asking the government to be released us. Of course. And I've seen in the media there've been some suggestions that alternative places for detention like the Mantra Hotel are being called a luxury option for detainees. So how would you respond to this people saying that it's a luxury to be detained in a hotel uh, Okay you know the about the last month the government announced for Australian who have uh, returned from overseas have been forced to quarantine only 14 days but second day in Sydney this hotel people are complain about situation not good food and security are outside the door we cannot open the door not uh, fresh air sunlight like this but people mm-hmm. shouldn't forget that we are human being we don't need any luxury like we just need to freedom and be safe only couple of week into the physical isolation for all australians are worried about their mental health issue mm-hmm. but we are we are in seven years isolation with no infection or no crime but please think about our mental health issue yeah and of course you've been uh, kept in your rooms for 23 hours a day for a much longer time than just the two weeks of quarantine yeah but uh, think about our mental health issue we are mentally and physically very tired your last seven years we, we have uh, commit no crime no sick Yeah, isolation last seven years. Yeah, and in terms of uh, thinking about uh, how Home Affairs is talking about this, 
So the Office of Home Affairs has said uh, that being detained in hotels and alternative points of detention like that is supposed to be a transit option. But since we're now in lockdown and movement is pretty much impossible, uh, what does this mean for you and other people detained there? Have you been told about any plans to move you or any transit plans like that? No, they don't have any plan, but uh, we keep asking asking to them, what's the point of keeping us? What was our fault? We, ha- we have no crime. We are human beings like you. But the government keep denying our fundamental rights and freedom. We keep asking them. They don't have any plan. Okay, so they haven't said anything about moving you anywhere. They're just keeping you in this situation with with very little information. No, they don't have any. any they don't keep any information to us. But they don't have any plan. Let's say we are in great risk in here. Yeah, definitely. And I've seen that other refugees that are being imprisoned at other onshore locations, um, including the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation and places like Villawood Detention Center, um, have also been engaging in some peaceful protests recently. So what have these protests been about, and has there been a government response? No, but uh, I don't know, but uh, we keep fighting for them. We keep we, we have been doing peaceful protests asking the government. What was our wrong? What was our fault? Are you keeping us? How long do you want keeping us? They don't have any plan. But we are mentally and physically tired. We have family. We are human like you. But they don't, we keep fighting for our peaceful protests, but government denying our freedom and rights. Yeah. I know that um, from the outside, you've been getting a bit of solidarity with that as well. So the Refugee Action Collective planned um, a vehicle convoy protest last weekend. And even though it followed physical distancing instructions, it was shut down by Victoria Police. Um, So what are your thoughts about this event and the response from uh, Victoria Police? They give but good support to us. They they tell to everyone we are in great risk and the police also take action to them and they are law but they they follow the law for outside people but we are in here we don't have any social exchange or something they don't follow us but you know but uh, all doctors and lawyers human rights and juan are calling for detainee to be released but government seems to be very ignore and careless. Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, they're enforcing social distancing outside, but they won't allow you to do the same where you're detained. Yes, that's right, yes. And um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? Yeah, almost uh, all media and everyone is talking about us. Yeah, even doctors, lawyers, human rights, everyone talking about us. We are in great risk. We should be released. But people and government should be response to us. We are human beings like you. How long do you want to keep us? What was our fault? We have no commit any crime. What was our fault? We don't know. Definitely. And if people want to learn more about this issue, 
uh, where can they go to learn more? I know that on Twitter, uh, you've been making some posts to show the peaceful protest and that kind of information. So would you like to share, you know, your Twitter handle or anything like that to, to let listeners know that they can see those updates? Yeah, but uh, I keep uh, continue update uh, our peaceful protest in here in our situation. And I always do it, but uh, should we know everyone is our condition and we are in great mm-hmm. That's why I always and every day and update. If anything happen, I will update from tweet, my tweet page. Okay, and so we can we can put in a link um, in the show notes to your Twitter so people can get those updates directly. Yes. And just to wrap up, are there any messages that you want to share with uh, with listeners? today, anything that you want people to take away with them after they've listened to this interview? Uh, yeah, but uh, I already tell everything our situation, but uh, should we think about this government? We are also human, outside people also human. They, they're looking at different, but this virus is common for everyone, but not different. But we should be thinking about us, we are human beings like you, or should we release us? We, we just need freedom and be safe. That's it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, I really appreciate you making the time to talk with me about this. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your calling. Thank you. We just listened to an interview with Danush, one of the people detained at the Mantra Bell City Hotel in Preston, about the harms of immigration detention, the need to release refugees into the community, and the potential impacts that coronavirus will have on detainees whose only crime was to seek a better life for themselves and their families. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times, and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period. But things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. So now we'll head into another song. Um, This one is called Bass Jumpin' by Arno Faraji. Man, trying to find my mini man, but where the digits at? Come between my own reality and anything 
that's fact Hit the reaper, come to whisper But I'm only getting deeper, come to figure I'm just in my head painting pictures I can't hear the reaper hey. Louder than the reefer hey. Put me in the speaker But I'm big Head clouded, I'm bass jumping Had to make options so much she can wait on her Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them Yeah, so when me up, son, that's when I take a break Feel the ground and the ash and the tattoo from a plate Ever since I was a kid, had thoughts I kill a stage And hide the body in the memories of those who came Know my shame, said nah, they know my name And nah, my nerves hang, still hanging with the lanes We jumping all sways from my evils like cages Studio most days, but that's my home base Deep, don't even on game, gotta stay cautious I don't mind, I don't pocket, but my mental rocket And my demons try to tell me I won't make it out I gave him one bird, aimed as a headshot Straight for the head top Head clouded I'm bass jumping, had to make options so much she can wait on her. Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them. Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them. Head clouded, I'm bass jumping, had to make options so much she can wait on her. Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them. Got some demons on my back, watch me blast on them. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And that song that we played for you just then was Bass Jumpin' by Arno Faraji. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. And my guest today is Jane Dicker from Harm Reduction Victoria. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. How are you going? Yeah, really well. Um, to start with, would you be able to introduce yourself and the work of Harm Reduction Victoria for listeners? Cool, I'd love to. Harm Reduction Victoria is, we are the drug user organisation for the state of Victoria. Um, pretty unique in that sense. We're not about, we're not a drug and alcohol service about getting off drugs or, or going on to treatment or, any, we're about, people are going to use drugs anyway, so why not give them the information and knowledge to be able to do it the safest way that they can. And, um, we do a lot of peer education, which is, you know, people that we've lived experience of drug use, educating people that are out there doing drugs, and um, it's really successful. Um, and then what, what's your role at Harm Reduction, Vic? Okay, I coordinate the health promotion team, which um, primarily it's looking at bloodborne virus transmission, so all your hepatitis C, HIV, that kind of prevention, safer drug use. Um, and I also coordinate the DOPE program, which is a drug overdose peer education program, which is really great. It's teaching people how to prevent an overdose, but in the case of an overdose, how to recognise it and how to respond more importantly, which, you know, drug users are usually there when someone overdoses. Why not skill them up into how to save their mates? It makes sense to me. <laughs> Maybe let's jump right in. What are some of the particular impacts that the COVID-19 pandemic is already having or could have for people using drugs? Oh, my goodness. How long does this show go for? I didn't think it went that long. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Look, in such an uncertain time anyway, you know, I'm really hesitant to say all this stuff, but this is, I guess, just where my head's thinking at, like, we're seeing problems already of people um, trying to access pharmacotherapy like methadone and, and suboxone and things like that. People that need to go to the doctor once a month and get a script for that and then present at a pharmacy every day to get dosed. 
you know, in these isolating times, it's a bit hard to kind of follow those rules, isn't it? So, um, you know, there's those issues. There's also, the, um, if we look at the illicit side of it, the illicit drug market, you know, they're predicting that's going to dry up. And, I mean, the implications of that for people who use drugs obviously would be major. But, um, yeah, look, that's that's such a huge question because there's just so many, it impacts us in every way, shape and form. If we're talking about the detox services or, or rehab, they're, you know, how do they take people in? They can't take people in in these times. So, yeah, it's just blocked everywhere people go that you are using drugs. I mean, it's happening for everyone in, in all situations. But with drug use, drug users, I guess we're a sort of vulnerable out there population to start with. And, um, you know, with all this extra policing and stuff, you know, you just wonder what the impact's going to be down the long run. And maybe let's unpack some of those things in a bit more detail. So first up, you were talking about, um, for folks on pharmacotherapy, some of the sort of the challenges um, that COVID-19 is likely to present. What are some of the the sort of the, the recommendations, I guess, or the suggestions you're putting out there for folks who are on pharmacotherapy or also for providers to make sure that everyone can get their doses through the pandemic? Well, yes, they were, you know, they did a lot of, you know, we had to wait for minister's approval and things like that. But they've, they've just, just recently, this last week, released the guidelines for pharmacotherapy prescription. And because um, people used to go and they, most people would go to the doctor once a month and get their script. And depending on what, where they're at with their dosing, some people are, are considered a bit more stable and they might get, you know, a certain amount of takeaway doses so they don't have to go to the pharmacy every day. But, Others, you know, do have to present every single day at the pharmacy. And like I said before, that's just so not practical in these times. And, um, people, if they, if they miss their dose or if something happens, let's say, I don't know, they, they miss getting to the pharmacy, they get cut off of their, um, prescription because they miss too many days or something. It's not as simple as just going back to the doctor and getting another script. You know, they have to actually, yeah, it's just not easy for people. So if they muck up, which a lot of people do, they're in big trouble. But so what they've done now is they've said doctors can um, write their scripts for up to six months. So I suggest if you're on a pharmacotherapy program um, and you're stable, ask your doctor if they could, um, you know, lengthen your script. It means you don't have to go back to the doctor as often to, to get a script. Um, they used to be I think it was a maximum of four takeaway doses that someone could have but they've um now increased that I believe to 14 so that would mean that if you have to go to the chemist every day if you get 14 takeaways that's two weeks that you don't have to go there for which is pretty awesome but don't just go to your doctor and expect that they're going to write that out mate you know have a good relationship with your doctor and, and talk to them about it but they can actually increase your number of takeaways if you're stable yeah just tell the doctor to look on the department of um, human services website about it because um, it's hard to expect your doctor to be up to date with every new change that comes in so yeah don't tell your doctor just suggest it to the doctor but that's the go now they can get longer scripts and they can get more takeaways which is you know better than nothing i guess and what about um needle syringe programs are they considered an essential yeah. service and able to remain open or have Ab yeah uh, absolutely yeah absolutely they're an essential service um just about all of them have remained open 
Um, there's the delivery services still operating, which is, you know, fantastic. Work with them. They're extra busy now. But, um, you know, they can do kind of contactless delivery, like leave it, you know, you're not going to leave syringes out in the open for you, but, you know, they can, you can come to the front door, they can leave them on your porch for you. Um, yeah, no, they're still open. Yeah. But I have to say, if you're sick, just give them a call. If you can't get them, give them a call and see if they can work something out for you because about 99% of the time they'll be able to work something out for you. Nobody should have to go without access to needles and syringes during this time. And I was reading in the news just before that some some places in the United States are reporting a spike in overdose deaths already um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Are you oh, at all concerned that that might happen here as well? Absolutely, I'm concerned about that. Overdose has always been an issue for drug users, but especially now during this time when people are going to be perhaps their drug use is going to be a bit disrupted, you know, maybe... You know, they've had a bit of time off using and then they get something from someone else because their usual dealer wasn't around, whatever the reason. But overdoses happen and people need naloxone. You know, don't rely on an ambulance in times like this. People, the health services are already, you know, under the pump hard. But um, naloxone, get, ask your doctor for a script of naloxone and find out how to use it. It's not hard. And, you know, might be the nicest thing you can do for someone saving their life. But, yeah, we need to be aware of overdose. You know, overdose education, we've done it for years, telling people don't use on your own. But now all the messages that are coming out for this COVID-19 is, you know, be on your own. So it's, it's kind of exactly the opposite of what we've always said. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about that. Like, it does, as you're sort of saying, it does seem like almost really mixed messages, you know, because yeah. on the one hand you have the government um, saying, you know, socially isolate, like don't, you know, minimise your contact with other people, but obviously know that, like, you know, we don't want to be encouraging people to use by themselves and, like, you know, using together is so much safer. How do you balance yeah. those sorts of those things yeah. that seem to be, yeah, yeah. almost contradictory? <laughs> Yeah, well, this is what harm reduction is all about, yeah. So um, exactly. it's going against what, what the rule is. But, yeah, I mean, it's silly to use on your own. And, I mean, that you know, I've heard people gone to meetings and people have talked about, oh, well, just get them, you know, they could just Skype call or, you know, FaceTime mm. call their friend, you know, to do it. But not everybody's got a phone to bloody FaceTime their friend. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. not realistic, a lot of that. And, and the real real part of it is, you know, just don't use on your own when nobody's going to find you if you overdose. Like, that would be terrible in this time. So, mm. yeah, but even, you know, even, I guess, scoring drugs and that, you know, people are usually doing that in groups and, and but groups of people can't be out together. So straight away, you know, they're a red light. So what's happening with policing around that kind of stuff, you know, it's a bit scary. As hard as it is to say to people, just try and be, as careful and as sensible as you can. If you are scoring drugs off people, you know, make sure you're wiping packages down and stuff like that. There's a heap of stuff on our website mm. around um, safer drug use during this time. Is it, you know, a lot of times people score drugs that have come out of somebody's mouth, you know, like you need to be extra careful at a time like this and, you know, try and have a bit of infection control going on, which I know, you know, isn't always possible either. Yeah, and because I mean, the what you mentioned around policing, we've been talking about that quite a bit on the on Thursday breakfast about how you know I guess these concerns that 
the the state of emergency powers and the increased powers that are being handed over to police, you know, yeah. people with huge fines as well as imprisonment, is likely to affect those people in communities who are already most impacted and targeted by policing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yes, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts in relation to that for the drug use and community of you, you mentioned before something about like, you know, the long-term consequences. Um, yeah. Like there's, there's stuff here and now that's happening, but we also need to be looking forwards, right? Um, Absolutely we do. <laughs> there needs to be some, something needs to happen about it. Like we are one of those vulnerable communities, but it's not, and it's not just drug users, it's everyone, you know, like, I don't know, I was talking to a friend the other week who, who does sex work, you know, yeah. and, um, sort of her income's completely shot, gone mm-hmm. now. What happens to her? And, and, you know, she just also happens to be a drug user as well. So, you know, it's not looking good for her. You know, I keep hearing these things about the police have been told they can do, they're to use their discretion, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, then you hear things on, you know, the news about a, a girl got fined for having a driving lesson with her mother and stuff like that. And then they all talked about it and they got rid of that fine. But, you know, I can imagine if that was some poor person, I don't know, that wasn't having a driving lesson with their mother, the fine wouldn't get revoked and, yeah, Absolutely. it would be a very different outcome. <laughs> Absolutely. And I guess what we've been talking a bit about on Thursday Breakfast is, you know, how in relation to that question of policing that, you know, obviously criminalisation isn't the answer to a public health crisis, but that seems to be, you know, one of the state of Victoria's sort of key responses at the moment is to just give more powers to the police and make more things into offences that people can be charged for, you know, rather than actually investing in prevention and harm reduction and, you know, genuine public health measures in collaboration with communities. Yeah, look, that's been an argument that I've carried for God knows how many years. You know, look at the just the, how much money goes towards, you know, when you look at your three pillars of harm minimisation, you know, we've got harm reduction, we get, what, I think 2% of the money and the rest of it goes to, you know, demand reduction and supply reduction and, mm. you know, policing, in other words. So, yeah, that's, I mean, the whole government needs to change for that to happen. And I just, I don't know, I don't have a lot of faith in our government to do that. So, yeah, like you mentioned, there are some really awesome resources up on Harm Reduction Vic's um, website Website. about tips and tricks um, during COVID-19 when using drugs. Is there anything else both you'd like to sort of share in terms of those tips and tricks? Um, and also, you know, how can people sort of access those resources? Well, yeah, they're on our website. We're au. Yeah, we've split them into a couple, few categories. We've got the tips and tricks and we've got planning and we've also got the pharmacotherapy mm-hmm. one. And also, is, are there any other ways that Harm Reduction Vic is adapting to any of the new challenges that are posed by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, yes, we, um, you know, we're having to shift everything to be online and, and that because what we've done for so many years and what we've done so well is peer education, which is, you know, getting out and out and talking to people and, and learning from others and working with others. And, and we've had all that taken away from us, which me personally, I'm fine. I'm floundering a bit. I'm like, wow, how do we do this? But, you know, we're going to have to, you know, we're looking at having video um, video training online and um, we've got a peer network, which is um, people in the community that have um, 
are known as, I guess, I don't know, kind of champions within their community and, and they come and they do some training with us and um, they get registered with the Department of Health um, as far as being an outreach worker, which means legally they can um, carry syringes because I don't know if you know in Victoria it's legal for you to go to get the syringe from the needle and syringe program, but if you give that to someone else, technically that's illegal. So it's a stupid law that, you know, they're going to get changed anyway. But in the meantime, um, our peer networkers, they get trained up by us. They become legit through the Department of Health so they can legally supply their friends um, with needles and syringes. And they also collect some data for us and, um, report back to us once a month with it and um it's it's amazing these people within their community they're doing it anyway but we're just i guess acknowledging it a little bit and paying them a, a little measly stipend for doing it but um yeah we're going to have to rely on our peers a lot more than we ever have which i mean it's going back to basics for us for the drug using community we've always relied on ourselves for to get something done you know it's Drug users are the reason that HIV is not rampant through the drug using community in Australia, you know, because drug users took on board the messages and, 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 you know, followed the actions and, and prevented a whole epidemic from starting. I don't know if people are aware HIV in other places of the around the world in the drug using community is, you know, quite severe but not in Australia we're less than I think two percent of HIV infections are due to injecting drug use in Australia and that's because we have needle and syringe programs and because drug users are smart enough to know to use a clean syringe each time so um, peers we're going to fall back to relying on our peers which is what we've always done and so I guess we're a bit um, lucky in that sense we've done it before but we're just going to have to go back to basics I guess peer education yeah. yeah, it's going to be a whole different world. <laughs> yeah, we had HIV, we, we tackled that, then we got Hep C, we tackled that. We're a pretty resilient community. However, you know, we still are vulnerable. So before we wrap up, I was just wondering, can you also just remind um, listeners about about how they can access naloxone during the pandemic, given we've been talking about um, the risk of overdose? Okay, access naloxone. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, you can actually go and buy it over-the-counter at a pharmacy, which is kind of expensive. You can ask your doctor for a script or you can go into just about any of the primary health services around Melbourne. So there's one in Footscray, there's one in Collingwood, there's one in the city. Uh, There's lots of places. But if you can't find somewhere, give HR Vic a ring and we'll definitely be able to hook you up with somewhere to get it from Um, because you just shouldn't be without it, yeah? It's... um, yeah, little cost to have, and it's a great reassurance to use if somebody overdoses. So, yeah, I just think we're crazy to be travelling without it these days. Thank you so much, Jane, for joining us on Thursday Breakfast today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jane Dicker from Harm Reduction Victoria, talking with me about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic for the drug-using community. Harm Reduction Vic has some awesome resources up on their website containing tips and tricks on drug use, planning and pharmacotherapy during the COVID-19 pandemic. They're free to download, so check them out online at www.hrvic.org.au. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855am on your dial or streaming live at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. All right, so I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, Just to recap, um, 
we spoke with Sam Elkin. Um, then we heard some poetry from Chi Tran. Um, we heard a conversation between Shahrazade and uh, Chris Sharunga from Gecko. Um, and I spoke with Danush, who uh, really told us about the incredible hardships that detainees are facing in Mantra Bell City uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also which have been ongoing for a long time, especially since the repeal of the Medivac laws. Um, and finally, we heard a conversation between um, Jane Dicker from Harm Reduction Victoria and Max. Thanks, everyone. That was a that was a fantastic show. Yeah, it really was. Good work, everyone. Yeah, and I think these conversations around the around people seeking asylum and being uh, stuck and contained uh, and detained um, in sort of places like the Mantra Bell are really important to keep on having it as much as we can. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to uh, Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. And now we hand over to Lost in Science.